Well, we live in an ever-changing world, which means that as a church, we have a never-ending challenge to make sure that we're relevant to our world, to make sure that we're you know, connected and effective in our mission that we have in our world. And uh, which means that for, for oftentimes those who are in ministry, they want to know what are the trends, you know, like what's happening out there so that we can sort of stay current. And um, I got on Crosswalk.com, which is a pretty reputable Christian website, Crosswalk.com, and uh, I came across an article, 10 ways in which the church is no longer trending, the ways in which the trends of the church are changing. And I'm not going to bore you with all 10 of them, but I have a few that might be interesting to you, like like the first one is um, satellite campuses are no longer the trend. You know, satellite sites, like this is kind of like you're really cutting edge churches, edge churches, like, you know, we're here, but we're setting up a satellite site on the other side of town or, or uh, in another community. And, and this video feed, like they have a, a communicator, a preacher, and then they have a video feed at, the, at that satellite site. You know what I'm talking about? Well, Crosswalk.com says, that, well, that's not really in anymore. Um, churches kind of want more of a personal touch with the pastor, and so the satellite site doesn't feel very personal. Uh, matter of fact, larger church uh, um, sanctuaries are kind of uh, not as trending. Like They like smaller settings. It just seems to be the trend in the way things are going. And Speaking of service or uh, worship centers, here's another one. Rockstar worship teams are kind of trending out. You know, rock star worship teams, the, 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 the dude with the man bun and the, the tattoo right here on his arm, you know, and, you know, really cool dudes that are like super, super cool. Not that there's anything wrong with any of that, but uh, supposedly, you know, uh, the, the rock star worship groups are kind of not trending anymore. Uh, the, the reason is, um, well, it just doesn't seem too genuine that they'd rather have genuine worship teams that just feel real, you know. Uh, speaking of being genuine, along these same lines, trying too hard to be trendy. What's not trending is trying too hard to be trendy or to be too cool or, you know, hipster, like, you know, uh, trying too hard to be sort of cutting edge. That's not trending anymore. Let me just give you one more. I kind of like this one. Uh, pastors who promote their books. <laughs> Not trending anymore. So, uh, you just go out to the Welcome Center afterwards. And <laughs> Actually, I'm not advocating for or speaking against any of these trends. The point that I want to make is that it's just hard to keep up with the changes of our world. It's hard to keep up with how do you stay effective as a church. And uh, what was once in, just not too long ago, seems to no longer be in anymore. The Bible is always in. The Bible is always relevant. And what it is calling us to be as a church is the same thing it was calling the church to be in the first century when it was first born. That the Bible does have a lot to say with how to stay effective in our world. And it hasn't changed in over 2,000 years. What the calling of the church was for the churches around the Mediterranean 
is the same calling for the churches around Manitowoc. It's the same calling that we have for us in our day. So these next three weeks, I want to uh, talk about the church. These next three Sundays, I want to unpack a small letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a pastor. The pastor's name was Titus. Paul actually wrote three letters to pastors, two to Timothy and one to Titus. And the letter that he wrote to Titus is the smallest of the three. It's only three chapters. So in this three-chaptered book, I want to take one chapter a week and work through it. Paul wrote the book of Titus between the years 61 and 67 A.D. Uh, 67 A.D., most scholars believe, is when Paul was executed. Titus was the second from the last letter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote in his life. Uh, he sent Titus to the island of Crete. Now, let me show you where the island of Crete is in the Mediterranean. You'll see Crete is right here in the center of the Mediterranean. There were churches established in the, in the cities uh, throughout Crete, but they weren't doing really well. They just seemed to get off course a little bit. And so Paul sends Titus there to basically get them on course. Matter of fact, this photograph that you see that the slides are on is actually a photograph of the island of Crete. and kind of get an idea of what Crete looks like there. So the overarching theme of the book of Titus is that Christians must carry out their true calling and they are to do it together. That's why I titled the series, We're in This Together. No matter where a church is planted, no matter where they are throughout the world, no matter what millennium they're built in, they all have the same calling. So much can keep pulling us to make sure that we're relevant, make sure that we're effective, and absolutely we have to stay relevant and we have to stay effective. Yet, what we're going to learn from Titus has been tried and true over all the, the centuries that the church has been established. It's how we can be effective in our mission. We have a mission statement, which if you go out these doors and you look around this wall, basically on the other side of that clock, you'll see our mission statement up on the wall. It's to invite people into relationship with Jesus and together become devoted followers of him. Together become devoted followers of him. So the question is, that's a great mission. It's biblically based. Yet, how do we carry it out? How do we actually make it happen? And so that's what we're going to unpack because we are brothers and sisters in Christ if we're Christians and we're in this together. So let's talk about it. The first thing that the Apostle Paul does as he opens up the letter of Titus is he sets the course for Titus and for the churches in that region of the world and for us today. Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 of the 26 New Testament books. He wrote half of the New Testament books. And most all of those 13 books have a, a common theme. And that is that the opening lines of every letter, or the opening salutation, the opening greeting, the Apostle Paul always gives a hint as to what he's going to be writing on the whole rest of his time when he's writing the rest of the letter. And we see this hint in the beginning of the book of Titus. Titus, uh, you are to establish the churches, and here's how you're to set the course for them. So if you have your Bibles handy, you can go to Titus chapter 1. Titus is right after 2 Timothy, which is right after 1 Timothy. 
which is right after 2 Thessalonians, which is right after 1 Thessalonians. Okay, you're with me. You're tracking. At least three of you are. I heard about three voices. So Titus, Titus, let me see how it starts here. It says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. And this is who the letter is written to. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now, in these opening words, the Apostle Paul, I believe, sets up a three-laned course. When we think about our going in a direction, it actually has three parallel lanes that we need to be going in if we're going the course that God wants us to go uh, as a church. And the first lane of that course is that we understand what faith is all about. Faith. What, as a church, we help people establish what faith is all about. Did you see that in verse 1? Let's go back to verse 1. After he says who he is, then he says, and I'm writing this, for the faith of those chosen of God. And within that little phrase, I really want to highlight those three words, of the chosen. For the faith of the chosen. It's as if the Apostle Paul wants to give the impression to say, listen, you churches established in Crete, you church here in Manitowoc, you need to know that God has chosen people to be of the faith. Now, go out and reach them. There's people that will come to know Jesus as their Savior. God knows who they are. Go out and help them put their faith in Jesus. Go out and reach them. They are chosen. Now, just, all you got to do is go make an invitation. Have a conversation. Not only, I think, is he highlighting the faith of the lost that, are, that are, go, are chosen to come in, but secondly, I think Paul is including those who are already of the faith. As a matter of fact, as we unpack this letter, we're going to see how the Apostle Paul wants to help strengthen those Christians in their faith, help them grow in their faith, to think clearly about their faith, to be grounded in what they believe. All throughout the letter, we'll see this popping up which I think leads to the second of the three-lane course that we need to be on. The first lane is the lane of faith. The second lane is the lane of truth. You see that again in verse 1. For the faith of those chosen of God, and then he says, and the knowledge of the truth. The Apostle Paul, again, wrote 1 and 2 Timothy also to, the pastor, to Pastor Timothy. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, he highlights very clearly what the church is all about. He says the church is the household of God, which is the pillar and support of the truth. I mean, where else can you go in the world that is all about trying to get at that which is true, particularly to those things that really are deep and meaningful in life? I mean, where do you go where it says this is the absolute truth? No matter how much it's criticized, no matter how much it is ridiculed, no matter how much it's battled against, this is the truth. And this truth doesn't change. This is a truth that is so true that you get that sense when you're hearing it like, wow. I mean, that is like, that's like hitting me deep. Like, wait, how did you know about my life when you're saying those things? It seems like it's just like, you're just speaking the truth into my heart. Yeah, that's not me. That's, that's the Spirit working through His church and His Word. 
It pierces deep inside of us, down to the very thoughts and intentions of our heart. The church has a calling in our world today. It's the place that's all about the truth. Now, we pursue the truth in a loving way. We communicate the truth in a gentle way. We represent Jesus, who said, who, who it is said of him, he came full of truth, yes, but also full of grace. Grace is being good and kind to someone even though they don't deserve it. And so when we want to stand up for the truth, we know that there are some in our world that we're like, ah, oh, they don't even deserve us to be nice to them, but we say no. We come with the truth, but we come full of grace as well. It's our calling to be a church that is rock solid on pursuing that which is true. And the Bible is our filter. Well, there's a third lane that I think we need to be all about. We've got faith, we've got truth, and the third lane is godliness. That we are promoters of godliness. We're promoters of being holy, of being righteous. Notice again in Titus 1.1, and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. Truth without godliness is cruelty. Truth without godliness is brutality. Truth without godliness brings calamity and misery. Truth without godliness is an absurdity. In other words, it's incongruent. It doesn't line up. We cannot authentically have one without the other. They go hand in hand. Truth and godliness go hand in hand. Now, godliness is going to be a theme that we're going to see all throughout the book of Titus. And so we'll see more and more clearly what it's all about as we continue on in the next couple of weeks. But let me just say for now, this is the definition of godliness. Godliness is a loyalty or a devotion to God. Godliness is a loyalty or a devotion to God. The course for the church, the course for faith church, is that we help people grow in their loyalty to God. We help people grow in their devotion, their alignment with God, and this goes hand in hand with the truth. It all begins with faith, and it really ends with faith. It's all about faith. It's where we walk together by faith. So how does that sound to you? The three-lane course as a church that we just say, okay, here's what we're about. We're about faith. We're about truth. We're about godliness. Does that sound good to you? Am I missing anything there? I think it's pretty good. Amen. Thank you, Florence. Thank you. That's all I wanted. A little. Can I get an amen? amen. Okay, okay. So how do we do it? It's a great course. How do you go about doing it? How do we make sure that that actually happens? It's great if we can write it on our outline. Yep, got all the three. But how do we actually make it happen? Well, I think it starts with somebody setting the pace. There must be someone who sets the pace. And the ones who set the pace are the godly leaders in the body. The godly leaders. And the godly leaders of the church starts with the elders of the church. Titus is told by Paul, go and help set up these churches on this three-lane course 
and start by appointing elders in each and every one of them. Look at verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So these elders have to be established in every single church that's in the different cities. Namely, if a man is above reproach, now by the way, this idea of being above reproach means that you have a, a good reputation, that you're solid in your, in your character. And uh, he actually gives two different areas that were to be above reproach. And the first one, he talks about in your family, to making sure that your family is established well. He starts by saying, the husband of one wife. Now, if we take the Greek literally, the original language literally, it is a one-woman man. This isn't teaching that an elder has to be a guy that's married. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 8 says that it's actually better not to be married. That you can dedicate yourself to the Lord's work even more if you're not married. But if you are married, you have to be a one-woman man which means you have to be totally dedicated to your wife. You have to be totally devoted to your wife. That You don't have eyes that kind of wander and wonder about other women. And if you're not married, that you still are a one-woman man, meaning I'm, I'm, I'm looking, you know, I, I don't sort of get around, that I'm, I'm a guy that loves one person, not a guy that's looking for a bunch of different people. You, I don't need to elaborate. You understand. Um, and then he talks about the kids. He says, having children who believe. Now, I actually lean more toward the King James Version or the New King James Version here as far as understanding what it actually means. Uh, the New King James Version translates that having faithful children. Now, what's the difference between having faithful children and having children who believe? Well, you might think that uh, having children who believe means you've got to have children who are Christians. But that's not actually what this is teaching. Actually, it's God's responsibility to save people that they, he draws them to himself. And, you know, we can create environments. We're supposed to create environments for our kids to be instructed in the Lord. But having faithful children means having loyal children, having obedient children, having children that are under control. As a matter of fact, this next phrase, I think, is speaking about the children, not about the elder, where it says, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. These children have to be faithful, not accused of being unruly or unmanageable, that's dissipation, or being rebellious. Then verse 7, he goes on. For the overseer must be above reproach. Here it is, above reproach again, having a good, good quality character about him. As God's steward, as God's manager of what God is going to entrust you to lead. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. In other words, setting a good example for the rest of the church. Setting the right pace for the rest of the church. There's a fable, I don't think it's an actual true story, that I read about Leonardo da Vinci, the famous artist, of course. He died in 1519, just to kind of give you an idea of how long ago he, uh, he used to do all of his artwork, uh, many centuries ago. But uh, Leonardo da Vinci was uh, painting one of his masterpieces, and, uh, you know, he's a, a, an amazing, obvious master with the brush, and he's painting away, painting away. And one of the students is there watching him paint, and as he's going along, going along, he's getting kind of toward the end of his painting, and he turns to the student, and he hands him the brush, and he says, Now, you finish. 
would you do? If Leonardo da Vinci said, you finish my painting, my masterpiece, well, the student grabs the brush, uh, no, I, I, I mustn't, I can't, there's no way. I'll wreck it, I'll ruin it, I can't do it. And Leonardo da Vinci said to him, will not what I have done inspire you to do your best? Now, finish the painting. The young guy went up and worked it out. (laughs) Will not what I have done inspire you to do the best, your best? The Apostle Paul put it this way, imitate me as I imitate Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1. As leaders in the church were to say something like, will not the way that I have chosen to live inspire you to pursue Christ also? That's the calling, the pace that leaders have to have. To have. It's about godly character. And then leaders have the task to do with that godly character. And the task is the main concern that the Apostle Paul is addressing in this letter. Matter of fact, verse 9 is the main concern that the Apostle Paul has in this letter that he's going to unpack for the rest of the letter. Notice what verse 9 says again. Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. And then listen to this. Here's the task. So that he, the elder, will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. To resort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Reminds me of a quote from John Calvin, the great Reformation, the the great guy of the Reformation who who lived during the 1500s. He actually uh, said that leaders or elders or pastors need two voices. One for gathering the sheep and the other for driving the wolves away or driving the thieves away. Two voices, gathering the sheep and driving the wolves or the thieves away. Because we're up against some challenges as a church. We're up against, first of all, the deceivers. There are deceivers out there, the wolves, the thieves, that we have to make sure we don't let them ruin what God has called us to be about. Paul wrote it this way to Titus in verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So there we see that in that day, it was the Jewish religious traditionalists that were getting the church off course. And he was saying, we've got to get back on course. And here's how you do it, verse 11. Who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that should not, they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. By the way, sordid gain is gaining, gaining an advantage in an immoral way. Trying to take advantage of people in an immoral way. Verse 12. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. I love that quote. That quote, and then Paul just saying, and this is so, so true. I'm not saying it. One of your favorite, famous poets is actually saying it. And if you like cool names, this would be Epimenides, Epimenides, Epimenides. I've read that a thousand times. Every single time I always stumble over it. Epimenides. So anyway, uh, yeah, this, this is a quote from a famous poet, and Paul says this is absolutely true. 
For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. It's one of the lanes that we want to stay in on our course. They're getting you off faith. They're, they're making it not what it is. So make sure we stay in line here. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men. The commandments of men is all about godliness, what real godliness is versus false godliness. So he's saying we've got to get back on course on what real godliness is. They're steering us off course. Who turn away from the truth. There's that third lane that they seem to be fighting against, getting us away from that which is actually true. So Paul's saying, listen, we've got to make sure that we identify those deceivers. We've got to deal with them. How we deal with them is a challenge. So let me tell you a true story. The one about Leonardo da Vinci, probably a fable. This one, I believe, is true. It's uh, about a, a little boy named Carl. Carl was seven years old in 1784. So you can picture the era that he lived in, 1784. Uh, at seven years old, he was in a classroom with other boys. And they were being unruly. They were, it was in Germany, and they were being unruly. The young lady from Germany said, I hear you're talking about Germany. This is my German story. Uh, and they were being unruly, and so the teacher said to the little boys, they said, hey, behave, behave. And they weren't behaving. He said, okay, we have a punishment for you. Get out your slates. I want you to give me the answer to this mathematical question. What is all the numbers 1 to 100 equal? Add them all up, one after the other. 1 to 100, what's your total number? So all the little boys get out their slates and their chalk, and they're working it, working it, working it, working it. One little boy, Carl, is sitting there staring off out the window. And all of a sudden, he has kind of like a little light bulb go on, and he just scribbles a couple of things down and walks up to the professor and hands in his slate. And the professor says, Carl, how did you get this number so quickly? Ah, this is exactly the right answer. How did you do it? And Carl said, well, I thought there's got to be a shorter way. Hmm. Well, let's see. 100 plus 1 is 101. 99 plus 2 is 101. 98 plus 3 is 101. And you can go all the way down to 51 plus 50 equals 101. Exactly. So, says Carl, I just did 101 times 50. That's how I got 5,050. Oh, bravo, Carl, bravo. Well, Carl became famous in his day. Matter of fact, he may have been one of the most famous mathematicians of the 19th century. And his name is Carl Friedrich Gauss of Germany. Here's a nice little painting of Carl Friedrich Gauss. Ah, I forgot to say that the professor said, you have been quite shrewd, Carl. Quite shrewd. Jesus said this to his first leaders. 
those disciples that were following after him when he walked this planet in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16. He said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. We want to deal with the deceivers. We must be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. We must ponder and think, wait, how do we address the deceivers? How do we do it while keeping our integrity? How do we think things through to be sure that we align ourselves with what the Scriptures teach? How do we seek to be wise while at the same time being gentle? Over the last two millenniums of church history, it has always been a battle to stay the course because there's deceivers of, at every turn. We have them today that we have to deal with. Let me just give you three categories of deceivers. One are the legalists. The legalists. The very thing that actually Titus was dealing with. The, the Jewish religious traditionalists that said you must do this and you must not do that. Legalists are those who go beyond what the scriptures teach and say do what, what is beyond what the Bible is teaching. We also have those who are attackers of the church. This is what Titus was dealing with. They're attacking the church. These are Christians who make it their quest to attack other Christians. That that just seems to be their calling in life. Even in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 and following, the Apostle Paul said, Listen, when I leave, I'm a little worried because there's going to be wolves among you, dressed in sheep's clothing. Still happens today. And then, of course, we've got the standard deceivers. They're the gossipers, the slanderers, the liars. Yeah, may these deceivers not be found among us. Not only are we up against the deceivers, but we also are up against the deceived. Yes, people who are deceived. Sadly, people, Christians even, get off course. Look at how Paul writes, what Paul writes in verse 15. He says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who, have who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. I read that over. I'm thinking, man, Paul, you're being pretty harsh there with these people. They're just deceived, and you're really kind of laying into them there. They may profess to know God outwardly, even display kind of this sense of righteousness, pretty solid. But what's below the surface? Are they truly godly? Or have they been deceived? Let me just tell you this truth. Deception is all it's cracked up to be. It's deceiving. Deception is deceiving. As a matter of fact, it reminds me of a story of Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was telling this story. Matter of fact, well, let me just tell the story with you. Play a little game with me, would you? Um, Abraham Lincoln was talking to this guy, and he asked him the question. He said, how many legs does a cow have? How many legs does a cow have? Four. Now, let's just call his tail a leg. Now, how many legs does a cow have? Five? Yeah, that's what the guy said, five. And Abraham Lincoln said, ah, now, that's where you're wrong. Just because we call something something, doesn't make it something. Track it with me on that? Just because we call his tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. 
And that's a little silly example of quickly, tiny little way in which all of a sudden you feel, well, I've kind of been deceived a little bit. Calling something right doesn't necessarily make it right. Calling something true doesn't necessarily make it true. And like I said, calling something something doesn't necessarily make it something. Just because our society calls something right or true doesn't mean it is. Matter of fact, the king of this world is Satan himself. He's the prince of the power of the air, the prince of darkness, the god of this world. And he is called the great deceiver or the father of all lies. People in our world today are deceived and they don't even know it, which is quite logical. (laughs) Because if you knew that you were deceived, you would no longer be deceived. So our calling is the same calling that the church has had since its inception in the first century. Our calling is to set a course for our day and age that we are in. To to expose deception so that people who are being deceived would come to know the truth. The absolute truth. The truth that's found in the Bible. Which is our filter for all truth. We cannot uh, We cannot know deception unless we know the truth. We cannot know that we're deceived unless we know the truth. Therefore, we have to be steady in feeding ourselves the truth, which starts, I think, with Sunday morning. This is good. We're here together. But I think it has to be more than that. I think we have to do more than that. I think we have to have a a steady diet of the Word of God. That's why I'm a proponent of quiet times, you know, where we spend some time during the day where we open up the Bible and we meditate on the Word. We, we read it like it's a love letter to us, like we really want to know what God has to tell us in His Word, that we just read it over and over again and we mull on it. So I'm suggesting daily quiet times, time in the Word every day. If you can't do every day, shoot for three times a week. I think that's a good goal. Our course is to uncover what, is, what authentic godliness actually is. What real loyalty to God looks like. And it starts with the leaders. They're the ones that set the pace. To uncover godliness, however, means we must connect with each other. We cannot grow in godliness as an island. We need one another. We cannot grow in in godliness in isolation. That's why we have groups that get together. We get together like this on Sunday morning, but then there's home discipleship groups. If you're not in a home discipleship group yet, I encourage you to do so. We call it HDGs. It's where we get together and we sharpen one another and we encourage one another. We get into each other's lives. We help each other to grow. We've got a couple other groups that are more intense than HDGs, and they're called journey groups or character development groups. They're wonderful to spur us on toward godliness. That's the goal of them all. Finally, we have to walk by faith together with Jesus and then go out into our world and tell our world how they need to put their faith in Jesus. He's the author and giver of life and of eternal life. He's the one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he's the one who will bring you out of your darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have to understand what you've called us to be as a church. And Lord, we, we just pray for us as a church that we would, we would be on the right course together, that we'd be working this out together, that we'd be carrying out your mission together, 
that we be reaching our community for you, Lord Jesus, together. And that we be growing in what it means to follow after you together. May we, as a church, invite people into a relationship with you and together become devoted followers after you. We pray this, Jesus, for your glory and in your name. And all of God's people say, Amen.